I was just curious. Um, I think maybe the word for unfortunate is different there. So yeah, Proverbs 31. I'll start again since Brooke's recording. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Proverbs 31 is one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible because it's transparently, not that, it's transparently um, applicable to, uh, it tells you what it's about. And what it's about is, it's about training a future king. And training a future king is important because kings possess uh, outsized power and responsibility. And that's the Spider-Man principle, for those of you that don't know, with great power comes great responsibility. And um, so training a future king is, is a massively important thing. You know, education, and this is going to be relevant as we think about, well, what can we as a church do for practically for some of these issues? It's important to remember and establish that education is one of the most strategic battlegrounds that there is. And sometimes we forget that, but... You know, our enemy probably doesn't ever forget that, in, that, that, that education is so strategically important. So we've got to train our kings and our queens, but they've got to be trained from people that are inside the royal household by those that actually know how to rule and who desire the best for the kingdom. Think of it this way. If, um, if Lemuel's mom had outsourced his education to someone from the house of Saul that was still hanging around and said, hey, you're a teacher. Um, Teach my kid how to be a king. Well, there's a strategic opportunity there for the enemy to teach Lemuel wrongly and perhaps even to seduce him into a philosophy that ultimately leads to tearing down the kingdom. So, all that to say, educating our kids is massively important, and being being careful about their education is important. But of course, you know it's it's important for us too to to be educated well, and from sources that love the kingdom, not from sources that seek to tear the kingdom down. I included this this quote from C.S. Lewis at the end of the book, *Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe*. These two kings and queens governed Narnia well, and long and happy was their reign. And they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarfs and young satyrs from being sent to school and generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. So I included this quote for two reasons. One, next week we're going to talk about liberty and justice and, and how we, how we cre- create a more just and free society for everybody. And this quote hints at that. But I also mostly included it just because in reality, we're the kings and the queens of this creation. That's Lewis's point in, in saying this. He's, he, wants, he wants Christians to understand those who are healed by Aslan's blood. He wants Christians to understand that we have now been given authority and responsibility to do what Lemuel's mom said he should do, to open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate, and open your mouth and judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. So we need to be trained how to rule. And then we need to be able to rule in a Christian way. And a Christian way of wielding authority always involves personal sacrifice. There's, there's only one way that God calls the people that he invests the authority in to wield that authority, and it's always at personal cost. There may be other issues involved, but if we're going to be just Christian kings and queens, we have to die like Christ. So um, what does that have to do with the second inaugural? Well, this is an incredibly special moment in history when Lincoln stands in March to deliver the second inaugural address. This is like such a powerful 
document because it's only 700 words long and like 500 of those words are only one syllable. But in this one document, you can, you can tease out everything you need to know about racial injustice in America and everything you need to think about when thinking of how to help. So what I'd like to do tonight is actually just talk through this short address and uh, then, then kind of think about some practicalities. So the address begins, now at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been made constantly, called forth on every point, and phase of the great contest, which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation, little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is well known to the public as to myself, and it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all, with high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to it, to it is ventured. So what's he saying here? Well, it's helpful to know some of the historical uh, context of this moment in time. So Lincoln has been running against General George McClellan for the position of president. Lincoln's already served four years. Lincoln's election is essentially the, the trigger point in many respects for the Civil War. McClellan's party, McClellan was a Democrat, and his party was split on how the North, which is just the United States at this point, the Union, of how the, how the Democratic Party should think about the Civil War. There was a faction within the Democratic Party called the Copperhead Faction who believed that the best thing to do would be to end the war and give the South whatever they want including separation from the Union. So there was a, a faction within the Democratic Party that was essentially, if passively, pro-slavery. And then there were some, like McClellan, who said, no, we need to finish this war, and we need to fight it out over the issue of slavery. If McClellan had won, there's a chance, perhaps a decent chance, that the Civil War would have ended prematurely without the issue of slavery being resolved. All throughout Lincoln's first four years, as he administrated over the Civil War, he was provided with many opportunities to, to strike the peace if he would let this issue go. And he repeatedly came to the table to discuss the ending of the war, but repeatedly rejected any conclusion that did not involve the elimination of institutionalized slavery. So McClellan is actually, for most of the election year, winning in the polls. And uh, that's because the war isn't going very well. Lincoln's generals are not top-rate. McClellan was one of them. McClellan's position throughout his, the campaign was, elect me, I'll run the war better, We'll get out of this dumb thing and move on. And so he was winning with that argument until about a month before the November election when William Sherman successfully captured the city of Atlanta. And this was seen at the time by the American people as pretty sure sign that the North was going to win the war. Anybody seen Gone with the Wind? I thought about that movie with this. So the people believe now through Sherman's victory that Lincoln's strategy is succeeding. They remarkably reverse themselves, or so we think. Uh, the polls could have been inaccurate. That's been known to happen. But um, Lincoln wins in a landslide. They used to do the inauguration in March think because of the weather, but I'm not, I think I remember reading that, but I'm not 100% sure. So this address that we're hearing from Lincoln now is taking place in March. What Lincoln is saying in this first section is that the progress of our arms, upon which all else justly, chiefly depends, is well known. 
And he's essentially saying, all of you know that the end of the war is, and the victorious end of the war is at least conceivable at this point. Though, he says, no prediction is ventured in terms of how long it will last. So the next section, he says, on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, so the last inauguration, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. It's a funny thing to think about Lincoln knowing that because he was elected, the civil war started. All dreaded it, all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, Lincoln saying, I didn't want this war. Insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties uh, deprecated war, but none of them would make war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let the nation perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the population were colored slaves. So sometimes people wonder, like, well, how many slaves were there, you know, at the end of the Civil War? And about, about four million. So he says one-eighth of the population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. And then he says these slaves, these four million slaves, one-eighth of the nation, constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. Now this is an important moment uh, to, to pause and say that I'm reading historical accounts now coming from a particular, po- particularly progressive political side that are attempting to suggest that the Civil War was not primarily about slavery. And I would suppose that the reason for that uh, revision is that in many respects, the Civil War um, makes a good accounting of the United States in that so many were willing to fight and die for this issue to be remedied. So he says that uh, all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen and perpetuate and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. So some of you remember from history, westward expansion was like the provocative issue that affected this whole thing. The South wasn't fighting to keep their right intact in the short term. The federal government wasn't attempting to forbid slavery in the South at this point. But the South was concerned as westward expansion continued, and this is the Missouri Compromise and the the Nebraska-Kansas Act and so forth, the South was concerned that as the West grew in population, their particular interests would dwindle and their political influence would be marginalized. And so they're seeing westward expansion as a threat down the road to, specifically, slavery. Um, it's very interesting to me that our church property is, is, is the, well, effectively, from where our church property is to where the pool is, that's the first resting spot of the Santa Fe Trail, you know, the first night out of Westport. And, and that dumb creek is representative in many respects of, like, what started the Civil War? That's not too big of a stretch to say, like, we're, we're, we're right there. This, this westward expansion was the provocative element, and that's what he's referring to there in that section. He said, neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. They all thought it was going to be short. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. So um, we've already gone through the Emancipation Proclamation. And so Lincoln's already made it uh, official. You can't own slaves. That proclamation wasn't enforced, of course, in Southern. You couldn't enforce it in Southern states. 
Each looked for an easier triumph and as a result, less fundamental and astounding. But both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other man's faces. That's powerful. He's saying, everybody in this nation is praying. And they're all reading the same Bible. And then he, he has to pause and say, but it's, it's astounding that the South would pray to an almighty holy God for victory so that they can continue to, re- to, to get their food, their bread, out of the sweat of other men's faces. And then he says, but let us judge not that we may not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. So it's very important when discussing the issue of race to not lose sight of the critical necessity of theological accuracy. I have seen in my lifetime pastors probably look a lot like I look sometimes miss the pain of the moment and instead want to talk about theological precision. And it can feel frustrating to the deep feelers that that's the first thing they talk about. But the cause of the Civil War was bad doctrine. Everybody was reading their Bibles, but there was indeed a fundamental disagreement on one issue in particular. And that issue in particular, as you read the abolitionist work and so forth, is that the understanding of what it meant to love your neighbor. So I, I just say that it is the role of some, at the least, it is the role of some to pursue theological precision because theological imprecision can veer wildly out of control. And most of the civil wars in the world had some, well, in the Christian world that I know about, the Western world, most civil wars had at least some theological element to them. So I think it's important to know that, that the Civil War was profoundly theological and centered a great degree upon a definition of love. And that's concerning, as we've seen over the last 10 years or so, the definition of love be contested in churches amongst Christians. He writes, the Almighty has his own purposes. So he's saying, you know, the South's got this perspective, the North's got this perspective, and he's saying... God's not on either side exactly. Woe unto the world because of its offenses, for it must needs that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. So he's quoting Jesus. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must need come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Lincoln is, this, is, this address is controversial because this is where Lincoln essentially establishes that both the north and the south share guilt over the existence of the slavery, uh, the institution of slavery. And that's important also as we think about solutions moving forward that from Lincoln's perspective, who I actually, though libertarians often don't love Lincoln, I do, from Lincoln's perspective, his assortment, and I think he's a Christian at this point in his life, and I think he's seeing things well. He says, friends, the North is not innocent in this matter. And of course, if you look just historically, that's the case. The we, those, 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 the slave trading was illegal. Own, slave ownership was illegal for quite some time in the North up to this point. Our economies were so intertwined between North and South that there really wasn't any guiltless party. 
And he says, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? In other words, here's, here's, I think this is really important. This is, a, this is where, in many respects, we begin to diverge. So it sounds so far like we're really kind of in line with a lot of the kind of common racial justice narratives. But we're going to begin to diverge a little bit here. Fondly do we hope. Now this is uh, the, the, the final passage. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of, every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And this is the line ever since Ferguson that has echoed in my mind time and time again. And this is Lincoln's point. The institution of slavery lasted 250 years. And during that time, much treasure was piled up as a consequence of this free labor. And much sweat and blood was extracted from the slaves, both in toil and in lashes, which he refers to specifically here. And Lincoln feels like it would be reasonable and just for God to say that you must pay all of that back in new treasure sunk and new blood drawn. So this is where we begin to diverge a little bit, I think. Lincoln has a sense that the nation was being forced by God to pay him back for this offense. Pay him back. And this is important because it's, it, we're going to talk about reparations tonight. Firstly, Lincoln has no problem in suggesting that all of the wealth piled up by Slavery must be paid back. And he has no problem suggesting that the blood drawn through the institution of slavery must be paid back. So biblically, he's on to something. I have an Australian friend of mine that has done a study of the Old and New Testament and found that every famine that we see recorded in the Scriptures is preceded by the shedding of innocent blood. So that from his theory... Um, God visits famine on the countries that shed innocent blood. That's the cycle he sees in the scriptures. But of course, more clearly, we see God visiting war upon nations that are consumed in unrepentant evil. So this is the exact point of departure uh, from both sides in many respects. One party suggests that we have no responsibilities for things that happened 250 years ago. So just to be clear, Lincoln didn't see it that way. And I think he has a point. Another party thinks that reparations are a necessary function of justice. And I think there's something to that. And I think Lincoln thought so too. And we're going to talk about what Lincoln thought about that in a, mo in a moment. But before we can deal with the question of how to make the theft of sweat and blood right with those from whom it was stolen, we need to see that our greatest debt is to God Almighty. And this is key and has to do with what I was trying to communicate on Sunday. All proper repentance for sins against other people begins with repentance to God, who was, in every case, the chief victim. And this is where we get to be where we're in that firm, weirdo, Bible weirdo, countercultural moment. Because we would say that even in the most horrific crimes imaginable, that involved incalculable suffering, the glory of God suffered more severely and unfairly than the victim did. And that's a really radical, countercultural thing to say. People would really have trouble comprehending that. But I bring that up because in this address, Lincoln is thinking that way. And he's saying that this toil and this blood, it's not being transferred exactly to the victims 
but it's being shed as a propitiation unto God himself. So this is why the orientation of the great commandment is so important. You've got to get right with God before you can get right with your neighbor. And this is what is functionally keeping us from really seeing full healing in this area. So David, as you probably know, in Psalm 51, he has just coerced, and maybe worse, sexually Bathsheba, and he has killed Uriah. And he has sinned against his country as a leader. And he prays in Psalm 51, 2 through 4, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So here is the root problem, as best as I can see, of the cultural moment. Who are we repenting to? This seems to be the fundamental divide. In a culture without God, the victim becomes God. How does a culture without the fear of God find justice? And what do we do with our guilt when there is no God? Who do we propitiate? Propitiate just means satisfy with with appropriate payment. Who do we pay? Well, we have no choice in a godless worldview but to make the victim God. And no human being, whether they are seeking that role or not, can bear the burden of being God. So even if a victim thinks they would really like to be God, It will destroy them. And it is not kindness to give a victim the role of God just because we feel bad. It's an additional burden. So this is where things get complicated because we don't culturally together agree on who God is. But this is also where things get exceedingly simple because if we decide that is the necessary precondition to making anything right, then we can say right now that nationally, we can't as a nation make this right. But we can say, as Christians and as local churches, we should. We should. We should obey Proverbs 31 and proclaim justice for the afflicted. So he ends the statement with just this sweet sentiment. He says, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Can you imagine leaders disagreeing this graciously? With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan. It's pretty impressive right there. That's that's he's not he's not saying to care for this the northern one who's born the battle. He's saying care for everybody that's born the battle, for their widows, for their orphans, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and all nations. So his standard for how this war must end. And he's consistent on this, is that it must achieve a just and lasting peace. So what a, what a beautiful mixture of power and grace, full of, of charity, but also conviction. And he, Lincoln, is not willing to let the can, kick the can down the road again. And this feels like, if you're surveying the history of the United States, this feels like, very special moment. Because I think we could say that whether you think it was necessary or not, or appropriate or not, the founding fathers did kick this issue down the road. So this feels very special. So if you're following along in your notes, I posted this picture here. That's of Lincoln's speech. So two things. There's President Andrew Johnson is somewhere, and he has a top hat on, which really wasn't appropriate in this moment, but lots of them have them. 
wherever he is standing, he is doing so significantly inebriated. Right prior to the inauguration, Johnson gives a sloppy, drunk speech to a small group, and Lincoln tells his advisors, don't let him talk anymore today. But then directly above, in this very special moment, and it's circled on the photo, stands John Wilkes Booth, attending the second inaugural. And he will assassinate the president 41 days after this speech is delivered. So I've provided a timeline of significant events just in case you're trying to piece together the sequence. Just incidentally, I also included the date that the Communist Manifesto was printed and the Origin of Species because it's crazy that from 1848, less than 20 years, all of this stuff happened. Communist Manifesto, Origin of Species, American Civil War, assassination of Lincoln. All of it happened. Lincoln is assassinated. Now, Lincoln stands at this second, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, second inaugural, and he says, I don't know how long this is going to last. Well, April 9th, same year, General Lee surrenders to General Grant. That's basically it. April 15th, Lincoln goes to the theater, he's in a good mood, and he is killed. So, at this moment, what seemed like the final, finally, we're going to have, we're going to wrap up. It's going to be messy and complex, but finally we've got the guy we need. And we've, got, we've, we've got what it takes, a national resolve, to deal with this issue and heal this wound. And he's, he's killed. And you get that sense. I mean, it's just hard not to watch that situation unfold and say that providence of God was God brought Abraham Lincoln into this world to oversee, to start the Civil War and to oversee its conclusion. And it's like, just in bold print, that's done, so you're done, kind of a thing. But, and we'll talk about this more next week, but what is really essential for healing after a war of any kind, and for those of you that know World War I and World War II history, like First Treaty of Versailles, Yalta Conference, is a reconstruction process. You can't leave an open wound in your country because it'll get infected spiritually and culturally, and another, another set of miseries will fall upon you. So you don't leave an open wound in the country you've just conquered. You figure out a way to deal with it. Lincoln had ideas about that, and they were never executed, not, not fully. You've got to lead the nation through some kind of reconstruction process, and Lincoln had some plans, and we'll talk about those in a moment, but they didn't come to pass. I was thinking, you know, I've thought about this multiple times. In some ways, John Wilkes Booth feels to me, some days anyway, like the most influential person in the history in the last 155 years. This this acting chump like feels some days like he's been the most influential person in this whole story. Because I think you have a leader that has this rare combination of grace and conviction and he has I mean, it's just, it's just so frustrating. Okay. So Lincoln dies. President Johnson, who then was vice president to Lincoln, is a frequently inebriated Southern sympathizer, and he was left to heal this open wound. And Johnson's got many flaws, but the, the drunkenness is a big one. So go back. Just I, I printed this in the notes. Go back to Proverbs three th- or 31, where Lemuel's mama tells him, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. Why? Look at this. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. That is exactly what happened with Johnson. So it feels to me like in many respects, Johnson, not only did he fail, but that he in some ways desecrated the entire effort while he was drunk. Talk about frustrating. (laughs) Okay, so the next thing to discuss is, well, what do we do about all this? Where do we go from here? Okay. Do we have any sense of what Lincoln would have done? In your notes, and I don't think I've printed that for me, but I'm familiar enough with it, I can talk about it a little bit. In your notes, there's something called Special Field Order Number 15. 
And this was issued, and I'll see our timeline here. This was issued in January, so before the inauguration. And special field order number 15 was issued by General Sherman, who after uh, seizing Atlanta, kept marching toward the sea. And he arrives at the sea, the coast off of South Carolina, I believe. And he, with Abraham Lincoln's um, approval, declares, is it 40,000 acres? I don't know if it even says it there. 40,000 acres of land seized from southern landholders and given to black people. And apportions it out 40 acres per person. And it's really worth reading that decree. It's, it's, a really, it's pretty easy to read, especially the first section. It's really, that's the only part you really need to read in the first section. And he essentially says, and this was Lincoln's, with Lincoln's approval, all former slaves must now be given 40 acres and a mule. And you've probably heard that phrase before, 40 acres and a mule. In fact, if you start Googling 40 acres and a mule, you'll find, the, you'll find numbers that show the modern-day currency equivalent to 40 acres and a mule times 4 million slaves. So essentially, if you were wanting to do a reparations What's the number? And the number, I think the number is like six trillion. But, you know, we spent that during the coronavirus, so whatever. No. Um, the thing is, is that that doesn't get you anywhere. And here's why. We'll, we'll talk about this more next week. But Western civilization has a certain understanding of what liberty is and where it comes from. And it involves the, the ownership of personal property. And so that moment has, it, as a real opportunity to do real good, I believe has come and gone. I believe that if you could give people property that genuinely did not belong to them, or that you, in this case, that you could give people property that belonged to those who were imminently guilty property not money property ownership that would have done a tremendous good to healing the nation there's just something about owning property that changes everything and specifically changes everything over extended across many generations so my position about reparations is, is that we simply, as a nation, owe a debt that is impossible to pay. But that, as Christians, I believe my instinct has been to see Abraham Lincoln's unclear, but somewhat, uh, somewhat clear, intentions to move in this 40 acres policy and say, what can I do to voluntarily, strategically help people who have been historically hurt by this institution in a way that is spiritual, voluntary, strategic, but practical? So that's where the church comes in. Because as best I can see, we're the only ones that believe that God's God and we have the capacity as churches, as local churches, to say, listen, we can't, this is a debt that cannot be paid. But that doesn't remove some responsibility to say, what can we do? Even what can we do sacrificially? And it also points to the remedy, which is not, which is not the kinds of things that Christians have typically done for the African-American community. The remedy would need to be would need to be we would need to be open to the remedy being something like fixing educational access issues, which is a political thing. It would be highly appropriate for our church, for instance, in my opinion, to be um, rabidly for school choice. Well, and it would be beneficial to us too but rapidly for the opportunity for anyone living in any zip code in any school district to attend any school, which has been a Republican policy for a decade. 
That seems like one of those things that's like, well, we should be about that. But to ultimately, the issue about this idea of how do you make things right and if when you can't make things right, you know, it, it is going to fall down to groups of individuals, not by guilt, but by goodwill and joy to, to follow Christ into hard places, say, yeah, what, you know, what can we do? In my opinion, after kind of living in this world off and on for a while, I don't actually, I believe that that property is a massive indicator, a predictor, and that figuring out if you could even just move one family into, you know, perhaps a neighborhood of their choosing, perhaps a neighborhood near the church, whatever, if you could move one family. And how do you screen that family? And what do you, you know, I mean, there's just a million complicators, and there's absolutely no guarantee that it pays off in any tangible way. But in my opinion, I think you can trace the history and see if we were going to do something, it would be tied to relocation out of really terrible places and um, education. Starting a school, paying for education, and so forth. So what do you guys think? What do you think about the issue of reparations in general? Daryl? Yeah. 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 It totally is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in agreement with that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So do you think, I feel like in that generation, if they could have followed through with the order. Sorry, I might not have said this well. So this, this order, Special Order 15, was given and Johnson basically reversed it eventually. Yeah. People got it and were kicked off. And the land was returned. So you had, sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. You had 40,000 people who actually took advantage of it immediately. And by the way, it's, it's like really firm historical evidence that when black people have been given just, just like a piece of land or, you know, equal access to, you know, um, to, to property and so forth. Like that's, you just see moments in history where like black Harlem in the 20s and so forth or Tulsa, and I don't remember how long ago that was, but Tulsa was considered the Black Wall Street for a long time until it was just literally mowed down uh, in a mob, a white mob. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like if in the first generation that could have been done with governmental force, it would have been righteous and appropriate. And it just said, essentially, yeah, if you had a plantation, sorry, you know, we'll give you 40 acres too. But we're splitting this up. And if you want to still live here with all of your former slaves living next door, <laughs> you go ahead. But, so, uh, but yeah, I've, I really feel like in a way that is heartbreaking to me, I think that would have been a massive answer to the wound if it had gone through. And Johnson, you know, allowed it not to happen. So you can't manufacture that again, I guess is where I'm at. And if and like I agree with you that if you were to just give, say, divide, uh, I don't know the number of African Americans in America right now, but we've seen this with Native American peoples, and we see this with housing projects, for instance. You know, this just is a ruinous lifestyle. And if we did that to your kids in three generations, they'd be destroyed psychologically, and you know, so on. And so it's not. It, the solution is not to. It, oh, I, I got. Well, <laughs> this is embarrassing to admit. My grandma passed away when I was 20, and he gave me $20,000, and I think it lasted like a year. <laughs> like, I would, like today, if someone gave me that money, not because I earned more, like I would just know how to deal, you know. So it's a ruinous idea to, to just hand people large amounts of money, and you wind up like, like, uh, like you said, lottery winners. So, Andrew. Well, it's important, though. I don't, I don't want to always come off as you know hard Republican, but it's important to note that historically unions have been terrible to Black people, and that that's kind of that was happening in the North as almost as soon as unions began. The unions haven't been altogether terrible, but they they have been a force of keeping Black people out of um, good like factory jobs and so forth. And then, you know, you've got the teachers union, which is a massive, uh, a massive issue in terms of quality of education delivery. And then you've got on top of that the whole issue of school choice, which Democrats are strongly against. And so you get these kind of these issues piling on top of each other and you just say, you know, it seems like that we've tried one way. Can we try a different way? And this is what I wanted to throw out also is 
are you prepared as a church or as a person to take extreme, significant, sizable action to care for someone because you think you should and then be told for the rest of your life that you haven't done enough by people who haven't done as much as you? Because that's, that's the reality. Like, my heart gets tested all the time in that way. Like, it's like, you know, sometimes I realize I did something not for the right reason, and the only time I realize it is when people are in, ungrateful, you know. <laughs> and, and then I realize, oh, <laughs> you know. So that's another factor in this whole deal is, is we got to have the right heart for this. Uh, so again, I think it just keeps going back to the, the idea of aligning with God, speaking to God. It seems like just a humble, average Christian thing to do. The one night when you're in bed and you're saying your prayers, say, God, you know, I don't really know what I have to do with that. But I don't even know if I have to know what I have to do with that. But if there's something I could do to make someone's life better and start a new generational uh, trajectory, you know, give me the faith to do it. But I, I think largely what I would suggest is is that groups of people t- together, we, 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 do, we could do something. We really could do something together. Um, so other thoughts? <laughs> Two of the worst presidents in the history of America both rose to power from assassination both named Johnson. Weird. And both intractively entangled in this issue in negative ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was watching a video with um, <laughs> a, a new black Calvinist who was just, he was like in that cage stage, you know, where he's dangerous and extreme. And he was with an older man, and they were interviewing Ted Cruz. And <laughs> this black guy was like talking to Ted Cruz, and he's like, you know, my ancestors were slaves, and I'm really glad that a war got started so that my ancestors could stop being slaves. And Ted Cruz is like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, should we start a war to end abortion? <laughs> and uh, and it was funny because, like, logically, there was no place to go, you know. Um, and Ted Cruz was just like, well, I don't think so, you know. And But, but yeah, it was one of those moments. And the black guy kind of pushed because he was young and, you know, that way. And he's like, I mean, I don't, I don't see any difference. And <laughs> And there's this, so yeah, that's, that's, yep. Yep. Daryl, you can't shake your head that much. If you get older, you can't, you can't do too much. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, the guys at the cigar shop were talking about it, and they decided that it's impossible because we're geographically too intertwined now. Were you going to say something? I haven't seen anything that has the element of personal property as a central centerpiece. And I haven't. With you, we haven't talked about, we haven't established that as, as a necessary thing. I, I kind of, I have done that work and believe that it is, but I've, I've realized you're not there yet. We haven't talked about it. 
but I haven't seen anything that does that. There is a lot of there are a lot of initiatives and things to support regarding school choice, which I do believe is a massive issue. The one I didn't talk about, but it goes along with education, is probably the most immediate sin that the church has to deal with related to the issue of race is something I mentioned last time or the time before, and that is in the 1950s and 40s and 30s, um, Southern Christian seminaries rejected a whole generation of black men who wanted to be pastors. And so you've got, in addition to everything else going on, you've got this theological famine that's been that's taken place for, for generations now, and your pastors are guys like Al Sharpton. And, like, what, do you, you know, I mean, that doesn't go well. And so, um, to me, if I were saying, like, maybe if I got ordered them, one of the first ones that might bring the most immediate relief and goodness to the maximal number of people is to figure out a way to sow theological um, character, theological precision back into the back into the black community on a larger scale. It's happening now. I know guys that are black that are solid, but maybe that would be one of those things where you know. Like our church could do, like let's say we, you know, in five years we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put X amount of money away, and we're gonna five years we're gonna start a scholarship at Midwestern, and if you're black, you can get it. No other strings attached, you know. We'll racially profile. Well, what's the equal opportunity that that sucker? Like to me, that seems like a real thing you could do that would make a real difference, and and, and exponentially so, because how many lives does the average pastor touch over his ministry, you know? So. We could force them to come to our church, too. That would be the two requirements are you have to be black and you have to come to our church and you have to lead worship sometimes. <laughs> I've already got this figured out. <laughs> and I think I mentioned this last time, but the Innocence Project or something dealing with the, 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 the question of just, and this isn't just a black thing, but just the question of we do know that there are inherent injustices in the justice system. I'm not sure those are expressly racial, as I've studied the data, but they are injustices, and they do matter. So, lawyers, guns, and money—we could we could accomplish a lot with those three. Yeah. Yep. Any other thoughts? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if you get that land or not. I don't, I don't think, I think, I don't, I mean, they're not evangelical, but they're not, I don't think, I don't think they support weird things, but, I, yeah. It would be kind of rough if we did a Habitat for Humanity house and they placed like a gay couple in. <laughs> we would all feel fairly defeated at that point. But, you know, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take all their land now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is nice. That's the, actually the land that Sherman took was all coastal, coastal land and coastal islands to give to the freed slaves. Can you imagine how much money that land would be worth now? Yeah. Yeah. The, what is it? The outlet? The, the inlet or something like that? No, it's the outer, outer banks. Yeah. I keep wanting to say outer limit. Any other thoughts?
Well, let me, let's just pray about this right now together. 